Did Don Draper really buy the world a Coke? Did Tony Soprano really die or just order more onion rings? The finales of our favorite shows can make us argue, make us cry, and make us crazy. From Spotify and The Ringer, I'm Andy Greenwald, and this is Stick the Landing, a new podcast where we'll be telling the story of modern TV backwards, one fade out at a time. Find Stick the Landing on Wednesdays on the Prestige TV feed, on Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Fire Nation has destroyed everything in their path. If the world is going to have any chance, it's going to need Aang. Right. There goes the savior of the world. Chase down every hint of the Avatar. It's my destiny. I'm not someone who can stop the Fire Nation. I don't want the responsibility. You don't have to do this alone. You have me, Tara, and a flying ball of fur. What more do you need? House of R. I'm Joanna Robinson. Joining me today, she's the Agni to my Kai. Did I say this last time we did an Avatar podcast? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> it is Mallory Rubin. Hi, Mallory. How you doing? Joanna Robinson, the Moonslayer herself. Hello. We're here to talk about Avatar, The Last Airbender, Netflix's eight-episode live-action adaptation of the animated series. If you want to hear our thoughts on the animated series, a show we love dearly and truly, we did a top 10 moments for, for that show uh, like you know a week and a half ago thereabouts. So you can go listen to that if you want to, if you want to get our general sense of our fandom for the animated series. But today we just wanted to take you through uh, the Netflix live-action series. We're not doing a deep dive because it's eight episodes, we're not sure where everyone is on their watch, that sort of thing. So we thought we'd bring back an old ringer classic, which is the winners and the losers of Avatar The Last Airbender. We've picked eight, four winners, four losers, four elements, four kingdoms, eight episodes of the show. There's a lot of numerical synchronicity here. Um, Mallory, how do you feel about this? Format. Are you excited to declare winners oh, and losers? I, yeah, I, I love a winners and losers rubric here at the Ringer. It's a, I'd say a part of the soul of the Ringer universe. So this is our first House of Our winners and losers experience. I'm excited. It feels right. And I think it's a nice way to chat about a show where some things worked and some things didn't. We have some notes <laughs> and we have some things to celebrate as well. So absolutely, we will be yeah. talking about those things today. Parking reminders generally, uh, Dune 2 is upon us very soon. We are so excited. Yeah. The whole Ringerverse plus House of Our Crew uh, went to go see it last night. Um, I got to see everyone. That was so fun. Um, Wonderful. Van commentary on Dune 2 is sort of everything you want in a theater. So um, great time. 
So the Midnight Boys pew, pew, will be doing double pew, Dune pew. coverage this week. They'll be doing a look back and then they'll be covering, they'll have their instant reaction to Dune 2. The Mint Edition is doing, uh, speaking of Avatar, The Last Airbender, a cartoon to live action. Here comes the pitch episode. So my one was that over on Mint Edition. And then we, the House of R, lovers, Spiceheads galore, lovers of Arrakis, or we'll be doing our Double Dune celebration next week. We'll be back on Monday with the deep dive, and then we'll be doing a Hall of Fame. This is the introduction of this like idea that we've been talking about for a really long time. Second, right? second this episode. Is second. Oh yeah, yeah. We did the right. Loki. Thank you. We did Loki. <laughs> Just as we celebrated Loki, we shall be celebrating Paul Atreides, a character yes. that we think is fascinating. and We want to talk about Muad'Dib. Muad'Dib. Welcome into the house of our Hall Usul, of Fame. Welcome, welcome. <laughs> um, so yes, Hall of Fame. I can't wait for that for Paul Atreides next week, as well as our Dune uh, to deep dive over under uh, three hours on the on the Dune deep dive. Vegas has taken it off the board. Yeah. Okay. Great. Um, <laughs> Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. <laughs> Molly Rubin, if folks have thoughts about Dune, mm-hmm. uh, three-body problem, which is further on down the road, this avatar, an apple that they ate, uh, uh-huh. a refutation of Mina Kimes' great thread about um, apples over on Twitter. Um, Salient insights from a brilliant mind. Some briny pickle takes. Like, where, where, sh- where should they put all those thoughts and feelings? Yeah, so a few things. If you, ha- if you have some missives that you'd like to say, yeah. the inbox is always open. Hobbitsanddragons at gmail.com. Send your thoughts. If you don't have thoughts to send, but you want to hear thoughts from us, yeah. follow the pod sure. on Spotify yeah. or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're at it, check out the Ringerverse's various social media handles. The Ringerverse is on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. Did the Ringerverse gang Take a group photo with the Dune Fuck It bucket. You'll have to follow on social to <laughs> find I, out. Did I travel down to LA and buy the bucket <laughs> just for the photo opportunity? <laughs> did Mallory Rubin, as soon as she got her bucket, which she was very fearful of because she was like, I put my popcorn in this? Has this been washed? Like, Has it been washed? Has other people, been, have yeah, other people I, touched it? But the, the, she said that first. But the second thing she said was, I can't wait to take uh, our photos. And as they're sitting waiting for the movie, she's like, I can't wait to take our photos after. So the photos <laughs> exist because Mallory Rubin willed it to be. Um, they're pretty tame, I got to say. I'll be, uh, you know, if you told me <laughs> to like fist the bucket for content, I would have. Spoiler warning and adult content warning. Ringer, ringer yeah, the house so of bar. The adult content warning came Too a little late. late today. Too late. I think. <laughs> this is a kid's show. I so apologize. Uh. House of Bar contains adult content occasionally. Great stuff. Probably not too bad today, but we'll see. No promises. Spoiler warning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All the way up through the eighth episode of the live action. And would we say, dare we say, some dribs and drabs from the animated yeah. series as well. Because some of the season one live action show dips into later episodes of the animated series. Yes. And I cannot promise that we will not reference those things as we talk about this. Does that sound fair, Mallory? Yes, I think that anything that happened in the animated series in season one that was not included in this is fair game and anything that was actively moved forward from future seasons is fair game. We will do our best to limit slash avoid spoiling long-term character arcs and plot points. That won't happen. Or will it? Mostly. (laughs) We might have some 
contextualization. Yes. yes. That accounts for where certain characters go, but we're not going to be like in episode correct seven of season three at the eleven minute mark. Correct. All right. I don't think. <laughs> After that smooth introduction and flawless oh, spoiler warning, and Boy. me definitely rem- remembering to ask you where people can follow the pod. Um, here we go to talk about eight <laughs> episodes of a Netflix series. Uh, showrunner Albert Kim is the uh, you know is the mastermind behind this season. Um, after the original animated series uh, creators left, we'll be talking about Mike and Brian a little later in this podcast, and I'm really excited to talk about them. But like, that's something to just bear in mind that whatever's going on here is something that the original creators are like, that's not really our interpretation of our story, or that's not really what we want to spend our time doing. That's just something that I was thinking about when I was watching the show. Um, it doesn't, let's just go now to our opening snapshot. So yeah, we just wanted to use like brief overall thoughts on the show. I will just say like with, with, as I've indicated on several like prep pods for this or, or hype drafts or whatever it was, um, I was really, really, really worried about this show because Brian and Mike left. And I will just say for my like big picture thought is that I didn't dislike it as much as I was worried I was going to dislike it, which is why we have four solid winners, I think, uh, to talk about this week, or at least three and a half solid winners to talk about (laughs) this week. Um, I was really, really worried about the show. And then I was watching it and I was like, oh, well, that, I like that. And I like that. No, I don't mind that. Oh, well, that's actually like a nice adaptive uh, change. I know some people are completely out on this and some people who have never seen the animated show are like really into it and excited to like learn yeah. about this new world. So there's a whole, yeah. I've seen a whole mix of reactions uh, to this show. Molly Rubin, where are you sitting uh, this fine Monday morning? You know, I thought this was a mixed bag. Yeah. <laughs> Which is yeah. why we've once again landed on our winners and losers rubric for today. I genuinely did not dislike this season of TV or think that this was like, let's say in Avatar The Last Airbender movie-esque abomination. Like we have seen, we know what a true failure to execute a live action adaptation of the story looks like. That's not what this was. I found things to like in this. I found things to enjoy. Ultimately, I found myself like, because we have not only seen the original series, but have such a deep and abiding affection for it, unable to stop thinking about it as I was watching this, which is reasonable and I guess predictable for, for people who love the animated series. I, so like on the one hand, I can't put myself into the position of somebody who is coming into the Avatar universe for the first time. As you know, like one, that was one of the, you just alluded to this. One of the things I was like excited about in the run up to the show was not only seeing the show and seeing how Netflix brought the, the world to life, but like what a Netflix banger can mean for people discovering a world And, like, my hope remains that people who watch this for the first time, this is their first introduction to the Avatar universe, are excited to hopefully go watch the original animated series, go watch Korra, and fall deeper into the world. I think that if you don't have an attachment to the original source material and you came into this cold, my maybe things about it don't work, but I think probably it's a pretty enjoyable experience some of the changes I actually think are okay. Yeah. And some of them I am utterly perplexed by and confounded by. 
I was thinking a little bit about Ahsoka watching this, not like, which is different, obviously, because even though this is not a beat for beat for beat recreation of the first season of the animated series, as we'll discuss, like the, the, the condensing and reordering of some of the, the plots is, is something that was on our minds watching it. But broadly, they're redoing the thing we've already seen in live action. The Ahsoka live action show is not a, Showing a, us something a redo new. Yeah. of Clone Wars or Rebels. It's a new story. But I was thinking a lot about that like initial acclamation period, even with performances that we ultimately ended up in some cases really enjoying, where just you're seeing somebody brought to life by a different performer in a different way. And it just takes you a while to get used to it. Right. So like, as is often the case, revisiting it, I I found that a little bit easier to hang with, but ultimately just some of the performances I thought captured. I'm okay with everything being different. Like it has to be definitionally. I actually think attempting like a cosplay of the original would be a mistake. Like giving the performers room to do their own thing is probably necessary or it always is going to seem like, mimicry or like a pale imitation of the thing we got before. But I think just definitionally, the truth is going to be that some of those performances and some of the, some of that is, is how the characters are brought to life by the performers. And some of it is just how the characters are written and what they have to do in the story, like what the actual scripts are, what the material is that each character's uh, working with. Some of that just worked better than others. And we will hit that as we go today. So yeah. On the cosplay front, it's interesting to me, one of the more alarming trends I've seen, mostly on TikTok, I haven't, been spending a lot of time on Avatar TikTok, but um, are people comparing this to the M. Night Shyamalan movie and claiming the M. Night Shyamalan movie was better? And I can only chalk this Absolutely up. Absolutely not. To, I know. But I can only chalk that up <laughs> to similar thing as what happened with the prequels, which is like a generation who watched the M. Night Shyamalan movies when they were kids and maybe had never seen the animated and they sort of like grew up with some light affection for it. But um, I'm actually, I'm not putting the prequels and prequels are better than the M. Night Shyamalan Avatar movie. Let me be clear. But um, that generational thing of like the generation who like went to the movies as kids to see that movie with like the eyes of children are like, maybe that movie wasn't so bad. I can, I can hang with that when you're talking about some wig and costume issues, because on the cosplay front, we're going to come back to wigs a little later, but like on the costume front, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. this is what made me believe that both believe that Albert Kim who ran the show and the various people working the show were huge fans of the animated series because the costumes and the wigs and everything are like meticulous recreations of the animated oh, yeah. version. Yeah. Um, and what I will say for the M night Shyamalan movie is that like the costuming and the wigs and stuff like that were just sort of like a, a nice adaptation into what this would look like in a more realistic live action world. I can give it that, but I can't give it anything else on this, on this, in this life or the next. No quarter for that movie, which is terrible. I rewatched that movie this weekend. It is astoundingly yeah. bad. Yeah. I mean, it is, I, I think, one of the worst things ever. Ever made. Committed to the public record. Correct. Like, it is, in every respect, it misses the mark. And so, again, this is absolutely leaps and bounds superior to that. And uh, it's and the way the that they say just to Ong and Avatar. Ong and Avatar. All of the pronunciations being different for absolutely no reason. It's just, everything about it is, is just utterly confounding and befuddling. Just, uh, so let me, I, I want to just make sure I'm being clear on the co- cosplay point. Like, I don't actually mean, I think your point about the costumes is a great one. I mean, like the performers. No, I, yeah, I, yeah, I, yeah. I, I knew you meant. I was just, yes, ending your use of the word. Yeah. 
I felt better about the people who weren't trying so hard to be the original versions of themselves. And those, those are like the places for me to celebrate. Um, whereas someone like the young actor who's playing Sokka, like there's a lot to enjoy in his performance, but there are times when I just felt him like straining just sound exactly like the animated version. And I'm like, well, you don't have to, man. You could just do your own thing and that works too. So Anyway, we'll talk about all of this. But yeah, I mean, overall, I would say the problem, we talked about this in our prep pod and uh, Dave and Neil and I talked about this a lot on Trial by Content last week when we were talking about live action adaptations of animated series. You, A live action adaptation just has this extra burden of needing to justify its existence. When a perfect thing exists, like the animated series, so why does this live action version exist? The most optimistic interpretation um, is Mallory's, which is like, what a, what a way to introduce a whole new subset of people into a world they may not ever check out because they're like, I don't want to watch a Nickelodeon kids animated show or whatever. So that's, that's a bright and sunny idea. The more cynical, uh, look is this is an IP cash grab, you know? I don't think that's why they did it. I (laughs) I just think that could be one of the benefits of it. Totally. Totally. So IP wars, streaming wars, this is just our new reality. So I I don't believe this show justified its, its existence, but I wasn't angry at the end of it that I watched it. That's where I that's where I land at the end of the day. So let's go now, shall we, to our four winners and four losers of Avatar: The Last Airbender, Netflix's live action eight episode series. Mallory and I have each picked two winners and two losers each, though we we roughly co-sign each other's picks. It's not like we're objecting to anything, but I think you will be able to tell, at least in one instance, uh, who picked uh, which uh, entry. Um, we're just going to start, we're going to alternate. We're going to start with a loser only because I want to end with a winner. So we end with an upbeat celebration of the world of Avatar, but that means we're starting with a loser and, and, and it is my go first, I suppose. And um. I, this is the only time we're centering on like one character and I have actually seen some people enjoy this depiction of this character, but for me, this version of Iroh misses the mark in a very significant way. So for me, a loser, this depiction of Uncle Iroh. And I think the reason it stood out to me so much is when we heard about the casting and Paul Sung-Hyung Lee, who we know from Mandalorian and uh, Kim's Convenience, uh, seemed like perfect casting to me, especially his work on Kim's Convenience, where he plays, you know, a character who is referred to as Appa. Um, yeah. uh, he is so wonderful and warm on that show. And so I was like, oh, yeah, that's Iroh for sure. And then he shows up here and... First of all, he doesn't look quite right to me because he looks too like neat and tidy. I need I need my Iroh to be a little shabbier than what we got here. Um, but mainly we start promisingly, there is some like funny business with like, I see some snacks I want and stuff like that. But overall, mm-hmm. I feel like they decided to this is true for a lot of characters, but they decided to zero in on one aspect and ignore 
um, the full bodied richness of a character. And for Iroh, they focused in on the emotional connection to Zuko, the, you know, sorrow around the loss of, of his uh, son, all of that. And the emotional connection with Zuko, the avuncular father figure, all of that sort of stuff that comes through. But I was missing the full picture of Iroh, which is that he is like, silly and weird and and funny and people constantly underestimate him because of that um that whole other aspect of and that is why Iroh is like one of our most cherished characters because of all the notes he plays and so to see a an actor who I know is capable of that be given material that only lets him do a fraction of this beloved character and Iroh I think is like the spine of the show in many ways um, real, it was a real mess for me. Um, how'd you feel? Holly Rubin. Yeah. So of the eight selections yes. that we have landed on today, I think this is the, certainly the one where we have the largest gap in mm-hmm. our feelings. And, and honestly, maybe the only one of the eight where we really have any differing opinion on it. I think we're pretty aligned uh, on the rest of them. I don't, I don't necessarily, like, as you're laying that out, it's hard for me to dispute a single part of that. I think that the Iroh performance worked a little bit better for me because actually of what you're identifying, which is that broad decision to focus in on the one thing, which I think is a limitation of the the adaptation on the whole, without Mm. without a doubt. Mm -hmm. The thing that they centered on here, how Zuko and Iroh's respective trauma and loss has brought them together, connects to, again, if you'd like to hear more of our thoughts on this, please check out our prior podcast where we discussed our favorite moments from the original animated series. My single favorite thing about the original show. And so I... I, Like, I am such a sucker and such an easy mark that, of course, it won't surprise you to hear... That as we are watching Iroh sit at his son's service, tears streaming down his face as Zuko gives him not only the medal, but this beautiful insight about what Luten gave to Zuko, not just physically and literally, but this lesson, this important thing. And they break out the cords. <laughs> leaves from the vine. Adam, we were watching this on the couch and he was like, how dare they? <laughs> I agree. Yeah, and yeah, you too. I, he was. Re- I told. I t- I previewed your take on this for him, and he was very happy. Um, I was just like a wreck. <laughs> it really got me. So that part of it worked for me. I think that broadly, what you are identifying about the absence of the quirkiness and the oddity is totally right, and and I I felt that too. It connects to a larger feeling that we have about the season that we will be discussing later on today's episode, take a little moment like the Omashu arrival where Zuko, of course, can't spare a moment, right? And Iroh is so excited to sample the offerings, taste some delicious meat, right? Of of course, and it's always tea time. Yeah. But also just to like steep, not just the tea leaves, but to steep in in a culture, right? And I I gather it's charm is lost on you when he says that to Zuko. Like, those are the kind of moments in addition to 
the quirkiness that I would have loved more of because as you're saying, Iroh is like the beating heart of the story. The character who does, and a lot of other characters do this as well, but who's so almost scene by scene, minute after minute, reminds us like why it is worth not just fighting actively, but rooting for and believing in other people, like Mm -hmm. and trying to make your way forward. The fact that he can do that, I, I love the point that you're making about people underestimating him. And, you know, we get a little bit of that, his confrontation with the deeply resentful and bitter Earth Kingdom soldier, right, who is carrying his own wound mm-hmm. and is like, well, I'm just going to pummel you and you're going to take it. And that's not what is waiting for him on the other end. But it's not nearly as present here. And I think you're you're right that that's, a, that's, that's something we're missing. What I will say is that, you know, rewatch, like watching it all the way through and then watching, it, watching the season again, when I restarted, I was like, oh no, I was being too hard. Like there's Iroh, like at the beginning. And then that, that whole facet of him goes away, I would say in like the back two thirds of the, of the season. Like we get some glimpses of it at the beginning and then it's like no time for this, which is a, a also common. Also connects to another thing we'll be discussing yeah, a today. A <laughs> common feeling season. I think also what I love, yeah. you know, what is helpful in something that is a not wonderful adaptation of something you love is it helps you better understand why the thing you love worked in the first place. So thinking about the missing elements here, I would say part of the beautiful richness of the Avatar animated characters, and we touched upon this a little bit in our Golden Trios episode that we did, where we were like, well, it's hard to put these kids in one slot because they're constantly sort of like moving all over the place. There's not just their characters arcing. I think what's true of most of these characters is that they have these contradictory dual facets to them. You know, like Katara is the sweet emotional girl until she's like, fuck, angry, scary, you know? And like Toph is tough and hardcore until she's like wounded and she's not. And so all these characters have so many layers to them that you get to see. And each layer and each facet that feels almost contradictory makes it so much more rewarding. So like, the, the depth of emotion that Iroh has for Zuko and various other people that he meets and the sensitivity and the understanding it hits that much harder because he is often so, like, focused on tea. And so you're just sort of like, oh, but actually, he know- so he knows exactly what matters, which is tea, hot tubs, noodles, and the people that you love, right? So yes. And Pai Show, of course. Pai Show, of course. Okay. <laughs> So yeah, uh, that is that is my first loser, Iroh. And I'm going to pair it with a winner because while we're talking about the adults in the show, I want to highlight two people that I think just knocked it out of the park entirely. Um, and they are both alums of a TV show that we talk about occasionally. Uh, you might've heard of it. It's called Lost. Oh yeah, I don't Lost. But the legend Daniel Day Kim, who played Jin on Lost, um, and Ken Leung, who plays Miles on Lost, um, are here as uh, Fire Lord Ozai and uh, Commander Zhao, uh, respectively. I want to start with Daniel Dakin. Okay. Who was, I would argue, the biggest name attached to this show, right? You know, other than like, you know, George Takei is doing a voice and like, you know, there's some voice acting and stuff like that. But I would say of the live actors, Daniel Dakin uh, is uh, the person that people were like, oh my God, Daniel Dakin is doing this. Um, Worth remembering that this man is in his mid-50s, and when he takes his shirt off for the Agni Kai, he has a six-pack. 
<laughs> he looks incredible. Unbelievable. But I think additionally, and he's like, not everyone is able to work with the elaborate wig and like facial hair that they're given. And he is like making the Ozai wig, the the cartoon accurate Ozai wig and like lengthy goatee absolutely work. Like doesn't look silly. looks right. Uh, Daniel's Kim is great. He's a great actor. This is almost a writing win because they did a complicated pass in direct opposition to what I just said about the oversimplification of certain characters. They did a really complicated pass on Ozai here where he reminds me a lot more of a Logan Roy than he does necessarily um, a Fire Lord Ozai. The masks episode where we get the Zuko flat, the main Zuko flashback, and we get some of Ozai's motivations for doing, which is not just like he's an evil asshole. It's he genuinely believes in toughening toughness and tough love is what his child needs here. Daniel D. Kim is giving some like some empathy and tenderness in this horrific thing that this father does. It's all like sort of in the, like he genuinely does on some level believe that this is the best thing for his son. Um, And then added to that is the way in which he's manipulating Azula, his daughter and pitting his children against each other in a way that Fire Lord Ozai doesn't directly do uh, in the animated series. We also get an Ozai Iroh interaction, which we never get in the animated series. Um, so Very enjoyable. I just, that I was thought, really cool. Yeah, I just thought it was like, I was like, oh, you know, like you're obviously you hired Daniel Day Kim. Let's give Daniel Day Kim more to do than just cackling evil, which again, Mark Hamill in the animated is great at. We know that that's something he loves and knows how to do. But <laughs> yeah. this is just a much more complicated Ozai. And I, I love that for me. What do you think, Mallory? Easily one of the highlights of the season. And it, a, a pleasant surprise in the like anticipating run-up where we're excited, of course, that Daniel Day Kim is in the show. But I think that, for me at least, was paired with the question of okay, we have a lot of anxiety collectively about what is not going to make it into this season. Yeah, the episodes are long, but there's only eight of them. And so we just understood. We know how these seasons are made, right? There's going to be this like condensed, propulsive, plot-driven aspect of the story. You move, like Ozai is, of course, a presence, a figure, this looming specter from the word go. But Ozai is a character who is actually in scenes saying things out loud. This has moved, like, way up, right? His totally. role as a prominent figure. Yes. And so, while I was very excited to see Daniel Day Kim in the role, I was like, what will this come in place of? There was not a second that he was on screen that I was worried about that. And in fact, I was would have loved to have even more time with him because I thought he was riveting. Broadly, I think Fire Nation was a, a, a win of the adaptation. I think there are losses inside of that. We just had the discussion about Iroh. I don't know if we want to talk about this now or maybe there's a better place to hit this later. Did not particularly enjoy the rendering of the Azula, May, Ty Lee trio. Have some thoughts and questions and notes about that that we'll get to at some point today. But we've already discussed Iroh. I was 
pretty fond of the Zuko performance. Oh, I, I think Zuko, I think <laughs> Dallas knew was the best of the main kids. Like, easily. Yeah, I thought his performance was great. And again, like we were alluding to in the opening snapshot, it, the, the the Zuko animated performance is an iconic one and he's a cherished and beloved character. And so you have that initial like, wait, this isn't what I'm, just my, my mind is pr- programmed to receive. But as soon as that, ceased which was like honestly like a, a scene or two just like this is a pretty compelling magnetic performance that captured the spirit of the character as well i think right? it's better than dev which is not fair to dev because dev is inside a horrible the movie. material that dev has yeah. to work with was again an absolute <laughs> but like travesty i've never in my travesty. life said i thought this person was better than dev patel because dev patel is one of my all-time everything always the, I thought I thought Dallas Liu as Zuko was a complete triumph for me. Yeah. Um not I, just I, really, I really was taken by him. He's uh he's a trained martial artist, so like his fighting's like his fighting work, especially the Agni Kai, I just thought looked incredible. Um and Van made this great point on the Midnight Boys, which is that he had the advantage of often working again. He was working opposite. Ken Lung, Daniel Day Kim, and Paul as Iroh. Like he was working against these accomplished adult actors most of the time. Um, you know, he has some stuff with Aang, et cetera, but like most of the time he's working with adults. That helps, I think. And I agree with that. But I just like, I do like looking back, I think Masks was my favorite episode. And it's like very much really a Zuko one. episode, yeah. you know? Yeah. The so. Zuko backstory stuff I thought was incredible. I agree. And then you built, I, I loved that point about being paired with the, with the adults. And then you get the change of pace of a moment, like Aang asking Zuko about the, which hair he uses in his brushes. And yeah. it's just, I don't know. It like all, pretty much, pretty much everything with Zuko worked for me. I also think like I was saying earlier, I think that is part of why I, I didn't mind the, Iroh rendering mm. as much because it is so deeply connected to Zuko and I was such a fan of the the, the Zuko adaptation. But so the, the Fire, Fire Nation win, Fire Nation win, Ozai win, the, the Commander Zhao, who we'll talk about in a minute, win. So overall, I thought the Fire Nation was more successfully rendered than certain other groups. Ozai, there is like an absolute chilling quality to what we are witnessing. And whether it's a moment of pride and triumph or a moment of judgment and ridicule, your heart is racing and your stomach is clenching in the same way. I felt just as sick watching the glistening in his eye when he saw Azula channel lightning for the first time as I did hearing him say to Zuko, his son who he has tormented and maimed, I have made a mistake. I have sheltered you and it's made you soft like your mother. Like this is just a hideous thing. And the depth as you're as you're noting that informs our ability to understand what's fueling a person's how could a person behave that way to somebody they should that they should be charged with caring and nurturing and protecting and guiding and then the contrast of Iroh showing up on the boat like home all I need is here. That was great. The highlight of the season. Yeah, and then the added... Con- I gasped at that line and the added context we have of, like... Oh, my God. Yeah. Knowing what happened with Zuko's mom, if we are fans of the animated series and the comics, like, then you understand where Ozai's... Come- I don't know. I, just, I thought it was... I thought it was really well-written, well-performed character. Daniel Day Kim, uh, 
maybe has never played a, a straight villain, at least that I've seen. And so, you know, like a really fun moment for him. Ken Lung, like I think is my favorite thing that happened in this show. This is a deranged performance. <laughs> Zhao, I mean, that is a sincere compliment, yes. obviously. Zhao, as, as voiced by your love and mine, Jason Isaacs, in the animated series, like, we love Jason Isaacs. I would never give him a single note. I think his Zhao is fine, but his Zhao winds up being, like, a kind of, like, somewhat unmemorable season one sort of, like, mini-boss on our way forward uh, because Azula and Ozai, like, loom so large uh, later in the series. I'm not going to be forgetting this Zhao anytime soon because like the absolute genius this actor has, and he did it on Lost. He's not on everything. He does it in an industry. He like does it on everything he's ever done. <sighs> Can't wait for industry to come back. Is he is just so effortlessly funny. He has this just dry as toast delivery of just like the, mo- you know, I was just like rewatching it. And I was like on the page. Cactus this- juice in the desert in this season, Joe. Just on the page, the most like boring lines, and he would just deliver it with this like ironic lilt that I just was just soaking up. I absolutely loved him. It's funny. I heard from someone. I can't remember if it was an email I read or a tweet, and I apologize. But like, um, that they they felt like they wanted to give the Rewatchables award to Ken for being like seeming like he's in a different show than the show we're watching. <laughs> I don't agree, but I see where they're coming yeah, from. But yeah. I, this is like the humor yeah. I was often looking for. And yeah, I'm like, exactly. I'm getting it yeah. from Zhao of all people. But I was just, I just thought it was scrumptious. A pleasant surprise. Wonderful. Uh, I, th- I thought he was immensely entertaining and supremely unhinged. I love a delusional striver. Love a delusional striver. And that is one of the tweaks in the adaptation or, you know, amplifications that I thought was really smart. Because, like, I love the way you're, the mini boss framing for for original season one is, is exactly right and perfect. I don't think there's ever really a moment watching it. Sometimes it can be hard to separate like where you know things are going from how you felt about it in real time. But I don't really think there's a moment where you're like, this is ultimately who the threat is, right? You sort of know you're waiting to move beyond him. And especially in a story where purpose and motivation is so central for the characters we're investing in, like understanding that in equal measure for the people opposing them on the other side is is really crucial. And you pair that with a character who is, um, not only willing, but eager to weaponize the dynamics and interplay between other people and, and use that for his own ends. Like a moment where he says to Zuko near the very end of the season, the winner is the one without the scar from daddy. Like this is savage, savage so viciousness. So it was incredible. Good. So good. It was incredible. And And to your point about the comedy, I think that across the season, one of the things that inhibited me from really, really, really luxuriating inside of a specific scene episode, the, the the season overall, is that the writing occasionally just felt so clunky and ham-fisted. And not just, as is often the case, in a moment of exposition. Often, unfortunately, in the moments that are supposed to, supposed to be deeply emotionally resonant, 
Zhao was kind of the opposite, where everything he said had a crackling intensity to it. And the zingers, <laughs> they kept saying. I was trying to think of my favorite because he had a few really funny loony lines. I think, I wonder what they'll call me when the news reaches Capital City. I quite like Zhao the Conqueror. It should have some flair. <laughs> Best summed up what worked about the character. So good. <laughs> that was truly great. Truly great. All right. Also, Fire Nation, great. Also, I don't know if I need to say it again, but I will. Watch Lost. What a great show. Okay. Um, Treat yourselves. Loser. I'm going to hand this one over to you, Mallory Rubin. Next loser. Number six. (sighs) I'd say thank you, but... You're too angry. It pains me (laughs) (laughs) to have to share my first loser of the day, Joe. Amy Lover of a magical creature. We're losers today, folks. There is not even close to enough Momo and Appa in this show. And it is something that we need to discuss for a moment. It's something that I cannot understand. I mean, I can. I do actually literally understand. It's incredibly expensive to render <laughs> these creatures. But they are sidelined for such vast stretches of, again, a short season that they're like largely absent. They're basically not in the Earth Kingdom run. It's like, where, where are they doing? It's like, you. I mean, I guess, why would they? I suppose they can't do Appa's last days because like, why would you even notice he's gone when he's always so, gone? Okay. Thank you for saying this because this is something I was thinking of. We talked a lot on our Top Moments Primer Pod about how, like, one of the things that's so wonderful about both Appa and Momo is that they're just always there, right? Whether they are actively the focus of a given plot point or moment, they're present. And part of that is like the charm of just seeing whatever mischief Momo is up to at a given moment. But part of it is reinforcing the theme that they are a part of this family. They are a part of Team Avatar. And so it actually is concerning and troubling to me that that is not conveyed here. We get, we do get some cute moments. Like it's fun to see Appa fly in to the rescue, of course. Momo, Momo land on Momo Sokka's head. Momo has a few. Yeah, know? Momo landing on Sokka's head. Delightful. Yeah. Momo stealing the food in episode two. Delightful. Throwing boulders with, at Fire Nation warriors with his tail. Hilarious. Uh, but holding the food like he's like mimicking how Sokka is packing. Great stuff. Digging up the egg corn in, in episode five. Momo in the palm of his hand showing our heroes that it is possible to believe in hope. Momo with the little soot, the little soot particle cough warning in episode seven. We get just enough to, I think, actually feel even more keenly what we are missing. Now, the Appa's Lost Day thing, like, when, Lost Days, not, God, perish the thought, not Last Days. God, That's so funny. Days. I thought you said Lost Day. I was like, it's more than one day, but you were like, Last Day. Many, horrifying. many weeks. The anguish 
that yeah. we and the characters in the show experience when Appa is missing is basically the reality of this series of TV so far, where they're just not present and thus not uh, stitched into the fabric of the family and the universe. The reason, other than just loving Appa, particularly loving Momo and craving them and thinking that they were so cute when we got them, Momo in particular, I thought was just darling. Uh, This is a real worry spot for me, as you know. Like, I actually get beyond the just, oh, I love a cute animal bit. It's not a bit. It's just real. It's just life. I'm sensitive to the risk of genre stories, of fantasy stories, failing to understand something crucial about a bond like this. Like, it's very John and Ghost (laughs) To me, it actually genuinely matters that Appa and Momo Momo are present for these characters and helping them find the courage in themselves to move forward throughout the day. So that's kind of the big picture. Can I, before you get to the next point that you're about to say, it's like major, major (laughs) thing that you want to talk about. I just want to, I just want to ramp up to it to say, yeah, watching this and I was like, okay. I was watching my screeners. I watched a bit before you and I was like, because there were things that worked, I was legitimately worried. And you were sort of more optimistic about the series than I was. I was a little worried that like you were going to love it and I was not. And then we were going to have to pot about it. And I would feel like I was letting you down, but not liking a thing as much as you liked it. Um, (laughs) Oh, that wouldn't let me down. I know, but I worry about it. I know you wouldn't, (laughs) but like in my head, my, my like, figment of my imagination head Mallory would be um and so I was like oh no what if Mallory like loves this and I'm not really like loving it oh no um and then you know noticing in general the absence of of Momo and Appa and then a thing happens towards the end of the season I was like oh Mallory, oh they're dead to Mallory oh oh it's over for them in Mallory's eyes so Mallory what happens at the end of the season at the 13 minute and 45 second mark (laughs) Of the season one finale, Uh a crime occurs. (laughs) A crime committed by the people who made Avatar The Last Airbender season one. Call the streaming cops. For Netflix. I believe that everybody who is in any way responsible for what unfolded here should be jailed. <laughs> what's, what's, I believe that. What's the phrase that you've texted me and all of us in all caps several times? Uh, I believe I said maimed and killed. <laughs> several times. I was very upset about this. At 1340, 45, Momo, peril unfolding all around us up in the north flies in the hero that he is to rescue a hapless young member of the Northern Water Tribe. We we get, I can barely bring myself to say this, we then get Momo screeches as the subtitle and he is crushed beneath rock crushed and Sokka goes over after (laughs) insulting him and pulls out his limp form crumpled body yeah (laughs) and they 
and Yue and Sokka carry him into the oasis, the healing waters, and imbue him with life again. Then we get a cute moment. Uh, we get a little Momo, Momo chitter. And Sokka nuzzles him and hugs him and pets him and Momo purrs. And that part's very sweet. But the fact that we were made to suffer through a Momo injury, one of the fucking like seven moments that Momo is on screen. And by the way, you know what one of the other ones was? It was Sokka saying that and Sokka saying he wants to eat Momo as part of the canon. That's fine. But cutting like the... (laughs) The Thronesian <laughs> grayscale to pie filling cut equivalent of Sokka saying that Momo looks like chicken and then cutting to somebody grilling a slab of meat is that was in episode two, six six fifteen. That is not acceptable. And this is like remember when Grogu when he, we had to see Grogu yeah. in the crosshairs yeah. in Sanctuary? I do. This is if they had like fucking actually pulled the trigger and shot him in the face. That's what they did here to Momo. Welcome. Like I, that was like almost like (laughs) a Charles worthy uh, level rant. And I loved it. What are we doing here? What are we doing here? (laughs) I had to channel Charles for the, for that one. This really made me mad. I know. My sweet Momo, protect him. I think a pro, I mean, not everything's going to have the budget of something else or whatever, but I do think you're very spoiled by the puppetry of the Star Wars shows, which means that we get gr- constant Grogu, tons of creatures that just like look like they're actually there and are, you know, are just there. Like, thank you. Star Wars, you're not always hitting it out of the park all the time on your TV shows, but what you're doing <laughs> on the puppetry level is yeah. phenomenal. And it means that Grogu gets to, like we, Mo should be there as much as Grogu is there yes. in the Mandalorian. Yeah, and Just I think there, this gets to this you know? larger point of the ability to properly adapt from animation to live action because genuinely, like we could be cognizant of the cost of the CGI rendering all we want. If you can't have two of the most central figures, I, I don't, I mean this sincerely in the story, why may, why do it? Yeah. And like, when you think about puppetry, like think about a character, uh, whenever I, th- Appa, one of my favorite characters of all time, but I always think about Falcor, the Luck Dragon from the Never Ending Story film. Like they have very similar vibes to me. And, you know, Falcor, one of the best puppets of all time, is just like, you know, again, just there and around. And, you know, just anyway, yeah. If you can't do it, why do it? That's that's a that's a great uh note. Okay. <laughs> Number five uh is is back yeah. to me, one of my winners. Yeah. Um, and I'm gonna say. Bending effects. We already mentioned the abomination that is the M. Night Shyamalan movie. There's so many things wrong with it, but I would say just slightly under the fact that they oh pronounce it Ong in Avatar, and maybe under the fact that Momo, uh, that Appa looks like an absolute like, hideous monster in that movie, <laughs> is the absolutely laughable bending that happens in that movie that is like slow, that is like the Earth Kingdom doing just like an entire Hakka routine just to lift one rock. Like it's so embarrassing in that movie. And and you're just like, again, if you can't do it, why do it? That applies to the bending in that. Like if you can't make bending look cool with whatever access you have to digital effects, then you can't do an Avatar story. This is not really what we're talking about, but 
you know what drives me fucking crazy on the bending effects front for the first? So they they make the nonsensical choice to imply that Fire Nation benders have to have fire around to pull from. And then, you know, it builds this moment where Ira was like, oh my, he, he, he created his own fire. Okay. Ridiculous. But if you're gonna do that, which you shouldn't, but if you're going to, and there is a climactic battle between the Fire Nation and the Northern Water Tribe, and you are the Northern Water Tribe, would you have fire everywhere? <laughs> Just everywhere. Little nestled flames waiting for your enemy all around. Oh my Carry God. On. I forgot. What a movie. That. Um, <laughs> so this open, like, I, I, when this season opens and we are, you know, in the long ago part of history. Um, and I had some like disorienting, like, why are we doing this? What, for what reason? I ended up not hating that again, I think because um, seeing Air Nation alive and vibrant again, just like gives us that whole, what do we, what do we lose? What do we miss? That sort of thing. Spending time in the Shire. I thought Gyatsu worked really well, but we're not here to talk about Gyatsu and Air Nation at Gyatsu all. Gyatsu coming through with yeah. some, yeah, some real. I thought real, Gyatsu was some wonderful. Um, Shire energy, you're right. Yeah. Um, but it opens with a bending fight. That's the very first thing we see. As if Albert Kim and all of his the folks working the show are like, we need to let them know right away that we are not going to give them what M. Night Shyamalan gave them. We know what we're doing. And I think the bending looks great. I think it looks phenomenal throughout. I have no notes about any of the bending, not fire bending, not water bending, definitely not earth, earth bending looks great. The like stomp up slice off, which is like one of my favorite earth bending moves. Like all of that just, I think looks fantastic. Um, I think the only thing that I've seen people push back on the bending front is that they think Aang is able to like fly too easily when he should be like more, it should be harder for him to glide. But I think he does that in the animated series all the time. So it's not really a note that I have, yeah. but yeah. um yeah, I just, I thought, I thought it looked f- fantastic. I thought the fighting overall, I I think there was a little bit of an, I guess when we open with that fight, I was a little, and we'll get to my big note for the season a little later, but I was a little worried at some of the rumors that I heard that Netflix was sort of chasing, wanting to have, as everyone has, their own thrones. And I was like, are they wanting to make Avatar into a Thrones-esque show with like darker, grimmer violence and stuff like that? And they're, you know when you're watching people get burned alive in live action, it is a different experience than watching it happen in a cartoon. And I will concede that entirely. But if it, when it comes down to like, I like the fight action of the show. Once again, I go back to that Agni Kai sequence, which I thought was just phenomenal. Um, this all works for me. I thought it was fantastic. What do you think? Hi. Yeah, I, I'm a fan as well. And sometimes a trailer dupes us into thinking something is going to be great and then we're let down. I don't know. Let's just throw out Secret Invasion as one property where that happened among, among many others. Remember that moment in time where we were all like Secret, secret Invasion, Platitudes. I actually thought of the Platitudes moment a couple of times while watching this. <laughs> Why would you but, bring up Secret Invasion? I'm like, sorry. Just 
saw me I'm take sorry. a mouthful I of know. coffee. You that saw it happen on the Zoom. And then you're like, I'm just going to drop these <laughs> two words. Platitudes. All right. Uh, every now and then we see a trailer where like, this looks dynamite. And then it's a huge letdown. Thought the Avatar trailers were particularly the the final, not the one that came out like a day before the show, but the one that was like a, around our, our hype draft were encouraging. But the bending effects, I actually think it fell into that opposite camp where you see something just in isolation. You see a little snippet of it and you're like, is this going to, is this going to look right? Like you've got a little Instagram reel of 10 seconds of Aang air bending over a boulder and like the internet is freaking out. In the flow of the show, I agree. It was, it was successfully executed. And I thought overall the show looked pretty good. The, the sets, the backgrounds, Omashu like looked amazing. And I think like the temples look really good that they went into. Um, yeah, like the big uh, Avatar Kyoshi uh, like statue, like all that sort of stuff. Like I thought like Appa Momo aside, digital effects and also production design wise, like we were, yeah, I thought we were doing a, a great yeah. job. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a worry, like, would they be able to pull that off? And then I think they did. So that was a, that was a relief. And yeah, you, you mentioned earlier when we were chatting about Zuko that you could just, I mean, really tell that Dallas is a trained and expert martial artist in those sequences. It was I, the, the street fight in Omashu between Zuko and Aang, just like, I thought that was an interesting example of where you could just, I mean, I don't actually know if this is right or what I'm talking about, to be clear, but it seemed to me sitting on my couch at home with no expertise. <laughs> that they were actually doing. It. It just like, that just, that's him. Flipping and spinning. And maybe it isn't, but it really seemed like it was. So that was, that was cool. Also, I mean, while we're talking about fighting, and we'll come back to her, uh, of course, but, um, Sokka and, and Suki, real highlight. Like when, you know, when they're training and then when they like team up, the fan fighting Wonderful. is all great stuff. Okay. Back to Mallory Rubin for another loser. <laughs> a loser. Okay. Here is the next loser. Side quests. We've been kind of teasing this throughout the discussion today. This is something that we were worried about heading in. And I think we were proven right in that concern. Uh, overall, I will say, I understand the decisions in like the repack repackaging and restructuring of this, the season. But that doesn't mean that we're not missing something because of it. The condensing of the plot and the pacing, there are like a few different elements of what was lost with the many side quests that we were deprived of. Now, was there ever a scenario where we were going to get all of these? Like, of course not. But if we think about what is missing in their absence, like, I think this is really like a miss. And I wonder if just inserting or tweaking, inserting a couple of these or tweaking a couple aspects of this would have like, opened up the story in the world because I think making the world feel a lot smaller was a big symptom of this. They just, there's just a few examples. They don't find the waterbending scroll on the pirate ship. 
So not only does that mean the pirates aren't in the story, sad, it means like the upshot of that, it's not a discovery our characters make, but also Grand Grand just has this thing. And was holding and was the information. was holding yeah. it from her, like, why? It's, it's a, depriving us of something that also deprives the characters of something. Bizarre. Is there room in a season like this for the Great Divide journey with the Warring Tribes? Okay, probably not. That's like a lot of new people that you need in the show. But what do we lose? We don't get to glimpse not only like what regular life is like for more people in a certain community, a different community than the few we get to see, but what it means for like the cracks and the fissures to to fan out and spread when people are left alone to just stew in their resentment. No fortune teller episode. We don't I get to really see miss the fortune teller episode. Huge miss. Like how an entire community can buy into a shared belief that becomes a shared delusion and what it means for our characters to confront that and what it shows us about them and how they think and how they're all on journeys of change, but how are they changing other people around them while also respecting their traditions and their lives? And I think what's brilliant about, like, the Great Divide episode is not my favorite episode, but what's true about both yeah, that episode yeah. and the Fortune Teller episode is Katara and Sokka come down on the exact opposite sides of like the conflicts in both of those episodes. And so it's like important to see these siblings encounter the wider worlds and figure out who they are in relation to all these things that they mean and how exactly. they're different, but also how they are family and water tribe and the same at the same time. And so like you miss, I think. A lot of these side quests really, the absence of them really hinder the Sokka and Katara uh, I development. Agree, I agree completely. The So this is a Nangzuko thing, but the other thing I was really missing was the, or thinking about like what this change meant was the storm, which is episode 12 of season one. I agree with you about masks being a highlight of this season. And I thought those, as, as I mentioned, the Zuko backstory reveals were great, but it actually, it did make me question again what I felt at the opening of the season, which is why are we getting this Aang backstory here rather than building toward it? Because I think the entwined reveal of Zuko and Aang's history in the storm, and again, on the side quest front, you're pairing that with like Zuko, it's not a side quest, but he, we watch him help his crew, we see Aang have to confront a person out in the world who's like, I blame you specifically for this. And then Aang have to bring himself to reveal to Katara this thing that he has been holding on to. I'll say also on the changes front, I try, I did not used to always be very good at this. I try to be open-minded about changes and like not needing to strictly, strictly, strictly adhere to a text. I think Aang just like, I need to get in the air to clear my head, I think, better up there rather than ro- actively running away and carrying that guilt with him. I'm now smuggling this inside of the side quest thing where it doesn't really belong, is a a, a change for the a worse. Miss. I, I found that yeah. quite strange and puzzling. On the condensed... The, 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 the condensed plotting aspect, Jet and his Freedom Fighters, we meet them in episode 10 of the animated series, Teo and the Mechanist, episode 17, up in the Northern Air Temple... These are not connected plot lines or locations 
And not only are they not connected to each other, they're not connected to Omashu. All of that is brought in to the Omashu sequence here. And then Secret Tunnel, character swap, making this a little like Thronesian incest for me by making this a Katara Saka journey instead of a Katara uh, Aang journey. Bizarre choice, but also that's brought up from season two. I uh, hate We can't that. wait for that. I just don't understand that. I, Why does everything have to happen in Omashu in two episodes here? As you know, I love Secret Tunnel. And, and the, the, the Amashu like, melange of plots is like the most egregious of the like, let's cram, let's just push everything Earth Kingdom into sort of like one big mixing yeah. bowl. But uh, having the Secret Tunnel like singers, but not having that like, uh, not having the bulk of the, uh, being that like, that being like the B or C plot almost of that episode, I was just like, this is wrong. This is incorrect. To right. Me. Because not only are you like, why is it here? You're like, oh, they already know they're not going to have the space for that in season two. There are So things, it like yeah. plays the anxiety yes. forward in a way that made me anxious. But there are things that worked for me, like um, Sokka and Katara being stuck in the spirit world. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. rather than being, like, ill. Or, like, you know, there are some various things where I was like, oh, okay, yes. like, I they're liked, off the I board liked that because too. they're here and not over there. Stuff like that. I like that, too. And especially, like, it's, as you know, I find it delightful when Momo's, like, tasked with trying to bring them. Just can't get them the water. He's, like, bringing them all this other shit instead. Iconic. But making them, putting them on an active quest to face this this defining truth from their past versus just like, I've got a fever and I will have one until I suck on a frozen toad was, I agree, a good change. On the sock and guitar front though, that's the next thing I think we, uh, this gets back to what you're saying a couple minutes ago, like with fewer side quests, fewer new places and fewer characters we're meeting or characters who we are meeting in the season still, I'm about to mention Batu, but in a different way, we lose something here. We don't get the Batu of the Water Tribe, episode 15, like the enti- this entire thing where Batu comes into the story in the present day. And Aang is the one, suddenly, who is on the outs, who feels like he doesn't belong with this group of people. He's the one tagging along on someone else's journey. I feel like that's like a crucial, crucial, crucial aspect, not only of what we learned about Aang, but of their dynamic as a group and like who is willing to make a sacrifice or an an adjustment for the other person and when. And there was a lot of stuff that I thought we lost on the Aang front with the, the absence of certain side quests. Like we don't get the deserter plot, right? From episode 16, we don't get Zhang Zhang. We don't get Aang learning to firebend his first attempt, which is this like deep and lasting scar. He is. There are other aspects of the season that I thought effectively tapped into Aang fearing his power. I liked when he was reflecting on the other air nomads, like being afraid of him because he he his power was so vast. I thought that was really really sad, but. Aang trying to bend fire, hurting, hurting his Katara, friend, and yeah. not, genuinely carrying that trepidation and fear and anxiety of like what he is capable of doing to the people he loves for into <laughs> season three, for yeah, series, yeah, is huge. So like, do you absolutely need a side quest to achieve that? No, there's probably another way you can do it. But if you're not meeting, if you're not seeking out a 
firebending master on a side quest, then when's that happening, right? So you're just losing all of these little things that I think are such important early notes for the characters. And also just like Aang acting as um, like tour guide for Sokka and Katara who have never left the village. And so Aang will be like, oh, we'll go here. They have the best noodles here. Or we'll do this. Or have right. you tried the tea right. from here? Yes. And, and, and finding that things have changed, right? Because he's been on ice for yep. a century. But also like sometimes things are the same. And he's just like, oh, we got to go visit these springs. Or we got to do this. Like we're on the road. We're going to do this. And like in a preseason interview... Um, I believe it was Albert Kim who was talking about this idea of like, you know, Aang has a vision, Aang sees this. So he's just like, go, go, go. And it just like, again, I want to be understanding of the idea. It's not, it's not Albert Kim's decision that this is an eight episode hour long season. And, and, you know, that is a Netflix decision. And so what do you do to make that make sense when you have to strip away all this stuff? You make it a, more propulsive kind of we got to get here now kind of quest but you you just you miss the depth i mean it's funny i i was just convinced a friend of mine who loves television watches tons of television to watch avatar the last year better for the first time and i was Mm -hmm. like hang tough hang tough with the beginning of season one it's like silly and childish but like it gets better And, and i'm just sort of like you just gotta hang with it and like these are 20 minute episodes they're little bite sized ones but like seasons are long and by the end of it you just like really feel like you've you've been with these people you understand these people um and they've spent time together you feel that passage of time of them being together companions and all these different circumstances so by the time they get to the northern water tribe like they are such a on the road for a long time family you get this with like you know with like lord of the rings because there's a difference between the fellowship just like starting out and like everything that Sam and Frodo have fucking been through by the time that they get to Mount Doom. You know what I mean? It's just like time investment in, in the journey, time evolving sort of thing. So, yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I think like the depth, but also then the whimsy and the hang and like, we're going to talk more about that also in in another category coming soon. But Aang is a character who arrives at Kyoshi Island and wants to ride the elephant koi. Yes. And that is like important, right? Yeah. You know, there was that little, we get a couple, you know, Aang's like, is, it, is that so bad, right? Just like being a kid and he and Kadara, even though they can bend, like just splashing each other with water, you get a few moments where you see that these are just children with the weight of the world and the fate of, man- of, of, of the four nations like on their shoulders, but not enough of it. And again, I missed that here, but it really, it mo- honestly was on my mind more th- like forecasting and thinking ahead because, you know, we won't get into the like plot particulars here, but you think of an episode like The Beach in in, in season three, one of our favorites. Amber Island Players. Amber Island Players. That's the other thing I was going to say. Like the show works in part because we and the characters have those reprieves from like the unrelenting, unceasing <laughs> stress and horror of, the, of everything else that's unfolding. Tales like, of Bossing Say. Like, you know, yeah. Just like I mean, being, that one's just incredible. I love that one. You know, just yeah. like being kids in the world. And on the kid front, there's also what we're missing and not, you know, we don't actually have a category for these people, though they might tuck under the next one. But like a lot of the things you miss that are stripped out have to do with like, Aang's crush on Katara and trying to impress her and like all of like that's largely missing. I feel like that can just bring us into our number three, which is 
a Mallory winner. I finally am a winner. Yeah. Okay, this will be a winner, Mallory. Young Love. Yeah. Joe, Young Love. And not you, Katara Dang, but what else? <laughs> <laughs> young Love. Okay. Chemistry, electricity, that draw that a young person feels to another young person. Great. I thought actually the season did genuinely like an exceptional job of portraying that in, in, in multiple different, with multiple different character pairings. But the bigger win here to me was the effectiveness of the new perspective the characters gained from each other inside of those connections. Let's hit some of them. Sokka and Suki. I mean, if you made me pick my single favorite thing from the season, this would be in the consideration set, which I think is a shock because... Just because, again, when we're thinking of, and I don't know, maybe I'm spending too much time talking about what we were worried about heading into the season. Like, I was excited for the show. Yeah. I guess it was in our moments primer where you mentioned some of the interviews and the concern that was bubbling in the fandom about the softening of the rough edges for Sokka and, you know, removing this, like, very heavy early season one focus of, of the Sokka sexism and... Uh, what he has to work through on his own arc. And I was kind of like, if that's not here, when he meets Suki, like, is this going to work? I thought these two were incredible together. The moment where, like, the... The... the, the, (laughs) Really, I just thought they were so charming. The uh, moment where Suki comes in and Sokka is like taking a little sponge bath and he's like covering his chest and she's just like looking him up and down. And then later they're about to kiss and the, the, <laughs> the bell rings and she says the bell and he says, you hear it too. <laughs> that was just incredible. The dancing and the training sequence, Suki removing her makeup. Yeah. Like these were charged electric moments and Sokka still had his false bravado even though it wasn't weighed down with the like, oh, but I doubt you. It said he was doubting himself. And so it actually ended up, I thought, I thought being like quite effective for me. Not only was I the thing I dreading, not like a, mm-hmm. a detriment to me, I actually thought it really heightened this interaction. And they each teach each other something, right? This is crucial. Like, what does Sokka do for Suki? We hear her saying to her mother like early in the episode, it's not that I'm too young. I just, I haven't, seen the world and then she's telling him just giving like real now I know Ariel I want (laughs) I want vibes uh yeah yes wandering free wish I could be part of Kyoshi Island for once (laughs) in my life bringing the world to me that's what she says how romantic yeah Maria Zhang who plays Suki is like in my top five for the season I just thought she was wonderful so good um and like since we had a tough hang with a lot of the younger actors in this season, I want to highlight, like, I mean, I actually didn't look up her age. She's probably like in her twenties or whatever, but like, I I thought she was a wonderful Suki, uh, not just looking at the part, but just sort of like, and, and in contrast to like the Omashu earth kingdom jambalaya, this we're spending this whole episode 
on Kyoshi Island. So we are like digging in. So we get additive stuff for Suki, her relationship with her mom, this, this like indication that she's not seen the wider world, yeah. uh, which pitching what's forward, the trade off when you have this pride, but also you feel like so isolated and, and, and deprived like, thinking about Suki's storyline going forward in the show. That's a great track delay for that character. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I loved all of that. I thought, I thought the fighting with the fan like looked incredible. I thought all of that was great. Um, my only note is that we didn't get Sokka in the like in the Kyoshi makeup and dress because I know. sad, sad. It's we just were cheated. A great look. It's we a were great cheated. Look. We I love that cheated. episode. I like. I had someone ask me that was that was one of my favorite episodes of the season. Yeah, I had someone ask me because Avatar Kyoshi is like one of my top tier favorite characters of all time. So like to get her, not we get her like right away in the first episode we see her. And I was like, there she is, Avatar Kyoshi. And then to have her manifest, that was like an very adaptive cool. change. I didn't mind at all. Yeah, I thought that was like cool. really yeah. cool. And like to watch her mastery of the four elements. And so to give us something to like look forward to when Aang figures out how to master all four elements and what that can look like in a fight. I just yeah. thought that was... That was awesome. Yeah, amazing. I like to, like, because obviously we get a lot more Gyatso, Gyatso in this season, but I, and I was initially a little like, oh, are we going to get this instead of more time commuting with prior avatars? But I ultimately ended up really liking that balance because Aang either learns and accepts or learns to cast aside a lesson from a prior incarnation of himself, another avatar, but also then is centering so fully what Gyatso has taught him over time. And that idea that like you can teach yourself something, but also you need to learn something from other people. Like that felt like a successfully executed balance that I, and also like the avatar is not the only one who has something worth hearing. I thought that was all really good too. Um, in, in terms of Suki and Sokka and the lesson going the other way, like I really, I, I loved this aspect of belief and Sokka's belief in himself and Suki like giving him this gift of saying, I think you're a real warrior. Like this is the, I'm just the guy in the group who's regular. Uh, we talked about that line and what that moment meant, means to us from the original series. And for them to have a conversation here about well, like we're not benders and, and Suki to to help him see the beauty in that and like yeah you have to be better but also like here's why it can be so cool if you are and like you can be I thought was awesome I really liked the Sokka performance it, it, I I really I thought he was great I thought um, he was I thought he was better in the front half than he was in the back I think like the back half sort of lost interest in him a little bit or like ran out you know but I actually really like the UA stuff so maybe I take that back um yes. But we'll, we'll get there momentarily. We'll, we'll get but there like, momentarily. But yeah, I think of the main trio, like if I think if I had to write the, let's say, quartet of kids, for me, mm -hmm. it's like Zuko, Sokka, I don't know, Guitar Ang are just sort of like didn't hit the way that I wanted them to hit. So there we are. Speaking of Katara, let's yeah. chat about Katara and Jet for a second here. No hot Haru in this season. Very sad. <laughs> deeply, deeply dismaying. But Jet is here and the flirtation is instant in the wagon. I, so Katara is, you know, taken with the Freedom Fighter camp and their way of life and this idea of like taking it to the man. And I thought the thing that was cool about this again in terms of like 
it's not just about the yearning tendrils, right? It's like, what do you learn from somebody? Maybe even if things end badly was an important thing to highlight. So she has to, after the the brief disagreement with Katara and Sokka, she has to concede, uh, my boyfriend is in fact the bomber. Oops. (laughs) (laughs) We all make mistakes. He did not put that in his profile. He's a little bit of a fixer-upper, but you know... (laughs) Whom's among us is it? That scene where Jet is encouraging Katara to think about her mother in life, not just in death, I really liked. And then hearing Katara in the tunnels where, again, I don't know why they were there here, but let's focus for a second on what they're talking about when they are. Saying to Sokka basically like, yeah, he was the problem, but he still helped me see something important that I'm now carrying with me. And then I think most crucially, it wasn't just a, look what the cute bad boy taught me moment. It's that Katara was able to pair that with belief in herself. It's not that she needed Jet, right? Something was unlocked and then it became about her. So like, when he says, look at the power you have, that's because of me. And she said, that wasn't you. That was me. I thought that was one of the stronger Katara moments in a Katara season arc that on the whole in this series did not really work for me. Um, also, I thought the that the Jet performance was fantastic. <laughs> the Katara <laughs> miss for the season. Yeah, it's, a, it's a bummer. It's really tough. Katara is yeah. very important. Uh, I, for I agree. Why I yeah. love the original series. Um, it's it's really disappointing. Want to talk about June and Iroh for a second on the I, Young Love Front? I, I do. <laughs> I mean, I wanted to put, I wanted to slide June, uh, uh, smuggle her in here. Um, it's at least a nice reverse because, like, Iroh perving on June is like the only Iroh note that in the original <laughs> series that you're like, what's going on, my guy? Like. <laughs> This is a little oh, So the fact that the live action's like, let's flip it in June is like hardcore flirting with him. I thought was like really funny and cute. I'll let it but, go because your dad's kind of cute. Great stuff. But like the, um, on that like cosplay front or like, and whether you mean like literally in the look or in the actorly imitation, this was like the one case where I was like, this is just like such an stunning one-to-one translation Arden Cho as June, like just, you know, it's a minor character from the animated, but like looked perfect, acted perfectly. Just like, I was like, there she is. That's June. And I, I yep. don't need that to always be the case with live action. But in this case, it was an example of like an exact one-to-one yeah. translation mm-hmm. that worked perfectly for me. I loved, I loved June. I thought she was wonderful. That's all. Speaking of... Areas where there were some (laughs) tweaks. (laughs) Let's talk about Sokka and Yue. What what did you make, obviously, of the wig? We need to clear out for for, uh, Wig Watch TM with Joanna Robinson TM, but also related to the wig (laughs) because the wig is so present in the rendering of this fox, the silver fox in the spirit realm. I loved the fox. I loved the fox thing because like, first of all, I loved, I, I liked the look of that digital character the fox but also i like this idea of pulling ua like into the story earlier so it's not just like Sokka literally just met her you know it's sort of like they have this mystical connection from earlier i know you from the spirit realm and so it just like puts a little extra accelerant 
on their connection so that you do feel the poignancy of the loss um, a bit easier than you do. Uh, I do in the animated version, but like, let's say in the M. Night Shyamalan version where I'm like, you literally just met her soccer. Like, what are we, ta- <laughs> what are we doing here? Yeah. Um, Amber yeah. Midthunder, who plays UA, who uh, was phenomenal in, in Prey and also in Legion, like is an actress I think is wonderful. And uh, like of all the young actors, the actor that I am most familiar with, having seen her in these other things. And I thought she was wonderful working her ass off against one of the worst wigs I've ever seen in all of time and space. <laughs> I um, thought of you immediately. Yeah. Immediately. I thought of you when Momo got crushed. You thought of me when you saw that crispy, crunchy wig. It was the moment. It's like, we might need a side pod just on this wig. This was the moment when I was like, in contrast to the June thing, I was like, how did any of you professional people look at that animated wig and say, let's recreate it strand for strand, beat for beat. No one will notice that it looks insane. Uh, How did you put it on Amber's head and say, maybe not that. So like, I, I, it is more cartoon accurate. It is quite cartoon accurate. But UA's look... But is, should it be? Is, no, it should not. <laughs> UA's look is the most... Other than Jet, who is... Jet and his cohort are, are oh, like, man. drawn yeah. anime style in a, in a... Let's be... Like, people call Avatar anime. It's not anime. But Jet is drawn in anime style. And then UA is kind of drawn in anime style. Very, like, Sailor Moon. Like... Her hair is ridiculous. It looks great in animation. It should never have been attempted in a live action uh, show. It's just absolutely Wild. reprehensible. And the fact that Amber Mid Thunder was able to make UA like soft and warm and human and charming and compelling underneath that abomination is just a further testament to her. She's wonderful, but the, the wig has got to be got to go. Astounding. Astounding. <laughs> Everything else with with UA, great though. I loved this little Cloudberry yeah. kitchen chat. Like looks delicious also. Should it be did look delicious. Imagine that. being able to just instantly make your own iced dessert because you're a waterbender seems great. But like I loved Sokka nervously flubbing his way through this interaction. Like the the just yeah. the girl and ordinary moments. Very cute. The on this like young love opening up new perspective front, I think the UA moments again, not you know, did every line work? No, I think like he's not the point of my dreams was pretty tough. <laughs> also, I missed asshole Han. I was what I was like, did we need to soften Han into no, like the no sweetest angel? Um, also RIP to Han and to that sweet little trainee who was like, Master Katara, I'm here to help. And then she was like, let me know if you see a fireball coming, even though they're actively engaged <laughs> in a war and the fireballs are everywhere. And then she just peaced out and that kid died. died. Brutal. 100%. <laughs> Brutal. Good, <laughs> good job, Master like, Katara. <laughs> Brutal. UA and Sokka talking about her connection to the spirit world and Sokka saying, so you pop over there just for fun. And he's like baffled, right? Cause he just had this immensely traumatic experience experience. in the fog. And she's like, 
wouldn't you? It's magical. Like when you meet somebody in your life who makes you think about something in a different way, that's a beautiful thing. It's awesome. And to it's capture like when that. I met you. And you just changed my life, Molly. <laughs> I would love to go into the spirit world with you, Joe. That would be beautiful. So that was just all. And like Co would take my face like I, yeah, the I'm not interested I in, in there. <laughs> I'm not interested in interacting with Co. I will say that. It's a pass for me personally, and it sounds like for you as well. The it's worth the risk to be alive moment with UA and Sokka. I just thought was great. And like one of the more effectively rendered, like pretty on the nose lines that UA somehow made this like perfectly magical little kernel of wisdom and insight about the human experience. So they were great. I think that Sokka on the non like lust and love front, but just more of like a friendship or mentorship front, which I'll smuggle into this category, even though, again, this is a very different kind of relationship. I did really like, even though I'm like, why Arteo and his father here in Amashu just confounded by it. I really liked the conversations between the mechanist and Sokka. And I thought that this like focus on you've got Tao and Aang and then Katara and Jet and Sokka and Sai and everybody's having their conversation basically about a parent and a child and legacy and what you inherit and carry and then the own path that you forge. And the mechanist saying to Sokka, like, you're an engineer. It's it's not always to find it's not always easy to find your path in life, but when you find it, you must embrace it. And saying that to him, not as like a mandate or a challenge or a threat, but like as an opportunity, as an invitation, an invitation to be who you are, I thought was great. And like I wish we had had more moments like that in the series, because it's part of the real beauty and heart of the show. I didn't miss Aang and Katara as a romantic focus of this season, I'll say. I don't miss it, but I'm like, are we not endgaming it then? Like Okay, I don't know. Just like Aang, Katara, they need to do, if they're going to do a season two, which I'm sure they are, like, we need to do some work uh, on figure out how to, like, not only are those kids, like, you know, and and Azula, May, and Ty Lee, like, are you kidding me? Like, not only are those kids, like, not really the best at reading their material, so, like, could use some acting help, which is available to them and they can have it. Um, the writing for Tara is just, this was the, I think the biggest absolutely note on the season and absolutely yeah. appalling to me that this is who they think. Katara I don't understand is. what happened there with the material Katara got. It's, it's upsetting. Yeah. It's just very a strange. complete mischaracterization of who that person is. So, um, which brings us to my final loser. <laughs> brings us nicely to, yeah. A loser that I'm calling T-O-N-E, Tone. This is the big note I have, overarching note for the whole season, eight episodes, which is the tone is just off. It's just wrong. And I actually don't think we need to linger too long here because we've just put a lot of bricks in place for why. Mischaracterization, lack of side quests, um, rushing certain things, um, all that sort of stuff. And, and the, the ramped up, uh, action, which works in a lot of ways, but when you, when it's out of balance with everything else, then it doesn't feel like Avatar to me most of the time. Uh, so serious, so deadly serious, uh, that you miss the lightness, the breathers, the, 
joy, the thirst for life. This isn't an adventure. This is a road sh- movie show story. This is like, you know, uh, you have to be joyously celebrating this incredible world that Brian and Mike have built uh, in this Avatar universe. Um, it's so inventive. It's so beautiful. Of course, it's like lifting from a million different a melange of Asian cultures, but like putting it all together in a really unforgettable, just like bold and captivating and I want to go to there kind of way. And I don't get this just like, gets sort of dulled down around the edges into like so many Netflix young adult fantasy stories that we've seen that just sort of feel interchangeable and doesn't, it just doesn't. Yeah. It just, it's just a a miss on the tone for me. And, and like, and, and again, just makes you really better appreciate how hard it was to capture what they captured in the original and how the original series can be so silly sometimes even too silly like you know all this sort of stuff and then like absolutely rip your guts out make you cry make you think about things uh, spiritually and emotionally and like what is family and 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 who am i and what is my purpose and all this sort of stuff like i i i i guess the biggest triumph of this show is that it made me so much appreciate how wonderful which i never thought i could appreciate more how wonderful the three seasons of the perfect TV series. Plus I love Cora as well. Plus all of Cora. Uh, and they'll always be there for me. So, you know, I oh. could not agree more. This is a uh, man. Where's our otter penguin sled race? You know, like when there's a little joking and I'm using the word joking, <laughs> pretty liberally, I think, exchange at the end about how Sokka's stomach is in his brain. I'm kind of like, but this wasn't a part of the character in the season. The fact that this is like inescapable, no matter the level of urgent peril that they are in, is like the specific balancing act and magic of the story. Cabbage Guy is kind of an interesting example of this to me in the season because, like, Cabbage Guy's there. He has to be. Secret Tunnel's there. Secret Tunnel's there. Like, but they almost felt... Cabbage Guy felt like, okay, if we don't have Cabbage Guy here, there will be an active revolt. But so he feels more like a wink to us and an Easter egg than a cabbage thread... Uh, tracing through the shoots of Amashu and the bridges and tunnels and connective tissue of the story. Like, Cabbage Guy is such a (laughs) sensation from the original series, not because it's a shock when he suddenly appears and laments the destruction of his cabbages. It's because it's exactly the kind of thing that you expect to see in every frame, even though you don't totally know or understand why. The surprise becomes the expected, and that is the magic of the show. So for that to be absent here is palpable and sad. But it does bring us to our final winner of the day. Yes. (laughs) Which is 
in addition to your right and beautiful point about the original series of, of being a winner again, this is connected, Avatar Studios, because the OG creators, Brian and Mike, who we've mentioned a few times, who left, as you noted, this adaptation, Paramount, Nickelodeon Parent Company, back, Avatar Studios formed, and the Slate folks, it is as full as Appa's saddle. There is so much animated goodness coming our way. Now, again, to go back, to circle back to the very beginning of the pod, if this is your first experience with the Avatar world, like, this is just purely good news for you, right? You can go watch the original series if you want. You can watch Korra. We would highly encourage it. If you're, you're not going to do that, that's okay. These new movies and series will still be there for you soon. October 2025, the slate begins. We are getting movies and shows, Joe. We'll run through them in a second. If you're a, uh, an obsessive, a loyalist to the original series and this Netflix show did not work for you, then again, this is great and welcome news because there is this balm on the horizon. There is the healing power of the water bending <laughs> awaiting us. We will the be women, whole. We will the be women of the Northern Water again. Tribe are here to, to heal They're you. They're here to heal us. Yeah. Joe, you want to run us through the impending slate? And and we should say, if anybody doesn't want to know what the future slate is, because hearing, oh, character X has a movie might tell you a future plot point about character X, this is a good time to bounce. Okay, this is, I did my best to hunt down the most recent news, but it's all a little nebulous. There's nothing like on the official Avatar Studios website. There's like some information Paramount. So this is the best we know today is the original, and, and I some of it I think was screwed up by, you know, the writer strike and all this sort of stuff like that. But 20, we're, we're in theory supposed to get a, TV show and a movie every single year. Like, what? <laughs> a bounty. Feasting. An embarrassment of riches. So, as Mel already mentioned, the one date we do, the firmest date we have is October 10th, seven days after my birthday, 2025. We get the adult Aang Gang movie, which is Aang and Katara and Zuko and Sokka and Toph. And hopefully Suki, though she's never in the, uh, you know, the art for this, but bring Suki along. What is she doing? Uh, Grown Up Adventures of, of Aang and Co. I'm so excited for this. This is going to be in theater. So we get to go to the cinema to experience this. <laughs> and I'm, I could not be more excited. What will the novelty popcorn bucket look like? Uh, I don't know. Will it be like <laughs> oh, man. A, a furry little oppa that we get to like cuddle and, and snack from? Like, what will it be? I don't know. It should probably be Momo like holding the popcorn for us because he's such a he's such a foodie. He's such a culinary enthusiast. You're Momo right. loves a snack. It's true. So so excited <laughs> for that. Also, so the first TV series we're getting is a new Avatar series. And as you know, the Avatar cycle, you know, goes through the elements. So it was fire before it was Aang. Aang is air. Cora uh, was water. We're getting an Earth Bender Avatar series. Uh said to take place approximately 100 years after Korra, which I, I, don't, I don't understand this sentence, which would be set in the Avatar universe equivalent of modern day. I don't know what that means. Maybe because they're thinking about the fact that like 
uh, Korra had elements of like the 1920s in it. So maybe like, you know, 100 years later brings us to the 2020s. I can kind of see that thought, you know what I mean? But I don't think we necessarily need to worry about present day or not. We're getting an Earthbender, an Earth Avatar. And given how much I love Kyoshi, I am stoked for this. I love Bolin. I love an Earthbender. I love Bolin. Bolin? I love Bolin. Are you yeah. kidding me? Love. So an Earth Avatar series that allegedly in 2025, we'll see if that timing plays out. 2026. Hold on to your hats and glasses because we're getting in theaters once again, a Fire Lord Zuko movie. Overwhelming. Different from the adult Aang gang movie. This is focused on Fire Lord Zuko. Dante Basco, I believe, and it's not been like officially confirmed, but he's doing like an official podcast with him currently. So like, why, why wouldn't you, if you've got him, hire Dante Basco back as the voice of adult Zuko. Um, And this is like, this is listed as their second film. So like 2026 is when we think this is going to come out. Um, In the running for number one pick, if we ever do like hype draft for the decade. (laughs) The Fire Lord Zuko movie? What if the Fire Lord Zuko movie is about a secret affair between Katara and Zuko? Um, Then it will be the best film (laughs) ever made. The Zutara movie. Okay. um, Uh, And then last but not least, we don't have any dates for any of these, but we've got two unknown spinoff shows that they've sort of announced are in the works and we don't know what they are. There's the Legacy of Young Chen uh, novelization that like people are wondering if they want to do uh, about you know, the previous airbending um, avatar, if, you, if there's going to be something about that. Um, I've always wanted a, a, a more stories about Juan, the first avatar. Mm, Steven Yen really voices fun. him yeah. in uh, a wonderful two-parter in Legends of Korra. Just incredible television. The one origin story. So I would love to get a full, I've always wanted a full one season or show. So that would be my wish. Do you have any, do you want like a all Momo all the time show? Like what, what adventures of Momo? I mean, yeah. Who says no? Sign me up. Sign me up immediately. (laughs) True. Who says no territory? I think all of this sounds exciting and wonderful to be back in the animated world, to be with the original creators, but also like, I think to scratch the itch that some people are really feeling right now of like, should this have been a new story? Not a different spin on a story we've already seen. Like to know that we'll be going into different parts of the timeline with characters we're already deeply attached to and invested in and meet new characters entirely is is just very appealing. And also is this a story that just belongs in animation just because of the like fantastical nature of this world? I mean, we believe in live action fantasy deeply. Obviously we talk about it all the time on this podcast, but like when watching, especially Korra, I would say both of them, but like really, especially Korra, some of the animation on that show just will like absolutely take your breath away. It's, it's art. So the prospect of more art from Brian and for Brian and Mike to be like, no, this is not what we want to do. Now we're in charge of something called Avatar Studios and we get to decide what our world that we created looked like. Last but not least, TBD, don't have a date on it. Untitled Avatar Kyoshi film. It was supposed to be 2024. It's now been pushed off to TBD, but I need it now <laughs> or <laughs> just after now uh, is when I need oh, the, the uh, Avatar Kyoshi film. So yeah, we're, we're the, the winner of this is the fact that we've yeah. got many more stories to come in this universe, the universe we love. And even if like no Netflix season two and season three, if they get to make it of the show is not quite 
scratching that itch. We do have other things coming that will. So that is how we are choosing to end this episode a on a winning upbeat for a universe <laughs> that we love. <laughs> Molly Rubin, Beautiful. thank you so much for joining me today on this journey. Jewel of my heart. Jewel oh. of my heart. <laughs> That's um, you. That's you. We'll be back next week with Double Dune. Double Dose of Dune. Yes! I can't fucking wait to pot about Dune Part 2 with you. Can't we fucking wait. love this movie. Un- Dune 2. Unbelievable. The hype it's is unbelievable. By eat, like, believe all of the hype. And <sighs> see this on the biggest, loudest screen you can find. Like, please. I'm rarely a see it on the biggest screen person as Joe knows, but even I, even I have to say that this time. There's like, yeah, there's some incredible. uh, Okay. We'll talk about more next week, but I'm (laughs) I'm so excited for everyone to see it. Uh, And I'm so excited to talk about it. Um, so come back and listen to us do that. You can listen to Midnight Boys. They've got their double dune thing going on. Um, Follow us in the pod. Follow us on social. Thank you so much to Carlos Chiraboga for his work on this. This thank you to Jimmy Dineron for his immaculate social work always, including taking the selfie with the popcorn buckets last night at the theater. And thank you to our Jenna Rangapal, uh, who just had his, can I say, am I allowed to say, he just had his bachelor party weekend, that things are personal information about Arjuna that he didn't say I could say on the podcast. (laughs) Happy bachelor party weekend, Arjuna. And uh, we'll see you all soon. Bye. 